Today, we have a ghost ship, a horse, some new clothes, and we just exiled our mother for killing her father. In other words, <laughs> things are going great. <laughs> Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. And today, comic books. Yeah. My name's Abu. My name's Leo. Leo, Leo, Leo. <laughs> uh-huh. It has been a while. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> since we have revisited a House of Trades comic book. Yeah. I had nearly forgotten. I was quietly hoping it would just stop and not finish so that we didn't have to. <laughs> but then they released more issues. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. All right. Well, let's give our listeners a bit of a refresher because it has been a while. Sure. It has. Since we've yeah. revisited this comic. So today we will be talking about the ongoing prequel comic book series called Dune House of Trades, written by Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson, adapted from a book written by Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson. Right. Throughout the discussion today, we'll be sharing our thoughts on the story so far. We have read and discussed issues one through eight. Today, we'll be focusing on issues nine and ten. And we'll, of course, be sharing our insights and connecting the lore to the original text and the larger Dune canon. Right. And to be clear, we haven't read the prequel novel, and that's actually going to come up a little bit later. Yes. Because especially in this episode... I started to notice some differences because I would reference the original book for specific scenes. And I have some thoughts about that I'll share at the end of the episode. But to kind of finish up our housekeeping or to continue with our housekeeping, regarding spoilers, because this is a prequel book, but it does address things that come up much later in Frank's writings, we're just going to say this is a spoiler episode for everything, all the books. We are not going to get into plot elements of like chapter house or God Emperor of Dune or anything like that. But there are some like nouns <laughs> that are from those books that show up in this series. I would just say if you are planning on reading those books eventually, probably just avoid the prequels altogether. This episode will be here for you when you've read all six of Frank's books. And then maybe you'll understand where we're coming from in our yeah. hot, spicy takes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And as always, if you like what we do here on Gamjabar, considering supporting us directly on patreon.com slash Gamjabar. You get bonus goodies like ad-free episodes, bloopers, and bonus content every single week, as well as an invitation to the exclusive Gamjabar Discord server, where you can chat with me and Leo directly and get to know the other Geeky Dune fans in our geeky little community <laughs> the geekiest siege you've ever seen it's amazing <laughs> you can also look good feel good by supporting us by checking out our merchandise at gomjabarshop.com we got some apparel we've got some little doodads some little trinkets check it out conquering the universe should never look bad folks take that imperial throne <laughs> wear a cool t-shirt while you do it or a tank top you need the mobility you got to be able to breathe it out you know right absolutely Okay, that's the housekeeping out of the way, Leo. Yeah. So after a short break, we'll be diving into issues 9 and 10, page by page, panel by panel. <laughs> so stick around. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Yeah, buckle up. 
<laughs> Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Issue number nine. Let's start off, as we always do, by celebrating something that we both genuinely love about all of these issues. Mm-hmm. Holy smokes, these covers are beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Evan Cagle, killing it with the cover illustrations. The alt illustrations are all really great. Just wanted to put that out there before we <laughs> get into what is going to be a pretty rough ride. <laughs> yeah. The art has certainly been a redeeming quality, one of the few redeeming qualities of this series. And I think we've said that ever since issue one, and it holds true today. Totally. Indeed. Okay, let's get into the actual plot, though. (laughs) Yeah. Issue 9 opens up with a young Leto Atreides, who has recently been promoted to Duke after the suspicious death of his father, Paulus, in the previous issues. Right. He is summarizing the situation for us. Right. He's now the head of a great house of the Lonstrad. He's the ruler of a planet. And as tears stream down his face, he clues into his emotional state. He reveals that he doesn't feel ready to take on this responsibility. Right. Quote, I'm not ready for this. End quote. Yeah. His mother joining him in this moment of grief <laughs> seems totally fine. Oh, yeah. As she tells him <laughs> that Emperor Elrude the Ninth is ready to accept his allegiance. Her delivery is suspiciously chill. And yeah. <laughs> as Leto thinks to himself, quote, I can't tell if her grief is sincere, end quote. I just want to grab him by the scruff of his neck and be like, yo, she killed your dad. Like, like clearly. (laughs) Clearly, my guy. I know you're young, but you're not that young. (laughs) It's it's so obvious. I would be worried about the state of Caladan in the hands of this young, clear idiot. But luckily, this is a prequel, so we know how it ends. (laughs) It ends with him being pretty great. Thank goodness. We were all young once, right? That's true. I missed a lot of murders. Who among us has not allowed a murder to slip here and there? (laughs) All the time. All the time when I was young. (laughs) Now, Leto goes to dinner with his Ixian best friends, Rombar and Kaylee, but he's not feeling it. He's not feeling hungry. He doesn't want to eat. House Mentat, Fufir, Hawat, love him. Younger in this comic than he is later on. That's how time works. (laughs) renews his pledge to House Atreides, which, I mean, first of all, (laughs) thank you, Thufir. It'd be weird if you were like, all right, it's been great. Bye. Right. So very nice of him to renew his pledge. But also, as I understand it, this is days later. Right. Come on. (laughs) Get some punctuality in that renewal of allegiance. Jesus. Was he rolling it over, do you think? Was he like, (laughs) I don't know, this kid seems pretty dumb. Should I? I don't Mm. know. There's perhaps a scrapped resignation letter somewhere in his room (laughs) yeah he flipped a coin he flipped a coin earlier that morning he was like yes or no let's go in addition to renewing his pledge re-upping his subscription to house atreides (laughs) the fear is also here to drop a revelation oh sure the murder it turns out was probably a murder what no (laughs) and young leto shocked cannot believe it mind blown (laughs) And he asks the obvious question, Thufir, who did it? Yeah. And Thufir explains, well, young lad, it could be a lot of people. Maybe it was the Harkonnens or arch nemeses. Uh-huh. Maybe the Richessians. Okay. <laughs> a reminder that Leto's mother is a literal Richessian. Nice. And in addition to that, Leto is a young, politically vulnerable duke. 
So there may be enemies that they don't even know about. Man. <laughs> Thanks. Really narrows it down, Thufir. Appreciate that. <laughs> it could be anyone. Could be literally anyone. Meanwhile, his mother's like lurking in the shadows. <laughs> Our next scene is still with Leto, and he's upon his new throne. And he's approached by future rock climber extraordinaire. Yes. Duncan motherfucking Idaho. Mm-hmm. Now, Duncan explains how, you listen, he warned the stable master about the bull. He's like, that's the scariest bull I've ever seen. I've only been at this job for three days. But instead of being able to maybe warn other people, the stable master threw him into a stable, locked him in, locked him into a pin to prevent him from spreading the word. Now, <laughs> Thufir, again, hits us with an absolutely mind-blowing possibility. Uh huh. He goes, listen. I've computed as a mentat that, you know what, the bull that killed uh, Paulus, I think the stable master who has access to the bulls and is in charge of them sure does have plenty of access to the bulls and sure is in charge of them. Oh, my God. Maybe. Maybe. Hear me out. This is crazy. Maybe he uh, had something to do with the bull. Huh? Holy shit. <laughs> I'm a human computer. <laughs> <laughs> Leto is like, my guy, you're on fire. That's incredible. You're so smart. Jesus. Damn. My TI-84 and AP stats did more computing than Thufir is doing here. <laughs> he's just, <laughs> he's grasping at straws. <laughs> Meanwhile, Leto's mother, working in the shadows, <laughs> she's so evil in these panels, rasps yeah. out from the shadows. No, him? No, he's innocent. He's one of my close friends that I brought with me from Planet Ruchis. And I got to say, if I were the stable master in this scenario, I'd be like, oh, she's exaggerating. I barely know her. <laughs> Who is that? I've never met her in my life. It's it's a tough look. Yeah, Absolutely. When Corella DeVille is trying to add you to her <laughs> Google Plus inner circle, you decline. Oh she would use Google Plus, the, the Google social thing. What was that called, even? Was it Google Plus? I actually forget what it was called. I'm not a Disney villain. I don't use that platform. Yeah. But do you remember it had that circle feature yeah. where you could designate people as your inner circle? Outer... Anyway. Yeah. It was like the top five of, uh, of my Yeah, you could pick your top five. Oh, my God. Or top how? I don't Sh remember. Shouts to like the literal six people who will understand that joke. <laughs> I know. Oh, God. The stable master at this point is thus brought forth, and Thufir points out something absolutely baffling. <laughs> Quote, House Ruchis has known dealings with the Harkonnens. End quote. What? What? Was this not information that would have been important earlier, Thufir? And also, uh, what? Like, okay, <laughs> Paulus married someone who literally was dealing with their, like, mortal enemies seems... I don't even have, like, an in-law reason to be upset by this, but it seems very against the grain. Yeah, the logic here is just so lopsided. I don't even know the word for it. But there's also another small nit we want to pick here. <laughs> yeah. Because Thufir starts this explanation about House Ritchie's and the Harkonnens by saying, Mentat projection, Duke Leto. Right. I'm about to make a Mentat projection. Sure. He's literally not projecting anything, though. All he is <laughs> stating is fact. What he's perhaps doing is a very loosely defined Mentat computation. Right. Yeah. 
what I like to call a quick Google search on the history of house for cheese and hard coding. <laughs> yeah. That's all he's doing here. Projection is something you would do into the future, right? You would say the data that I have now tells me that the outcomes A, B, and C are likely A is the highest. Right. That's a projection. And they do that. But this is not that. No. <laughs> this is not that. <laughs> He's like, Mintat projection. I'm hungry. <laughs> Thufir, that's... God. For real. Ugh. <laughs> now, Mustache Man slash Stable Master fucks up and interrupts Thufir's so-called projection. <laughs> but Leto shuts him down with a few stern words. Right. At that point, Helena, his mother, chimes in to claim that it wasn't the literal drugs in the bull system yeah. that killed her husband, right? but pride, his hubris, uh -huh. and also God's wrath that brought down Paulus. <laughs> yeah. Iconic excuses. I'm going to steal those. I was going to say. Next time, next time I don't deliver something to work, I'm going to be like, it's your pride, bro. <laughs> hubris. And also God. So listen. <laughs> I just imagine her rolling up to a crime scene. Detective, it's not the bullet that killed him. It was pride. It was pride. And also God. <laughs> Detective's like, how did you get past the tape? Right. <laughs> the answer pride killed him only works if it's Full Metal Alchemist and in no other situation. Yo, good call. <laughs> Hell yeah. Oh, man. Now, Leto here interrupts his mother and turns to the fear telling him to take this man and question him thoroughly with your mentat techniques which we know is just code for torture this motherfucker right right his mother begins to object no 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 don't do that what are you doing what are you doing and <laughs> yeah. leto shuts her down i actually i loved this panel mm -hmm. probably one of my favorite panels in the comic so far because leto's thinking to himself in this moment yeah my own mother is involved but then he like threatens her outright i will lock you in a tower and he ends the conversation and it's really i had a little moment of wow that's cool like i had a little visceral reaction to this panel i was like this is so cool he says quote i am the duke end quote yeah and i was like oh yes and again accented by a great illustration it was just a great little moment the whole thing doesn't make a lot of sense, but <laughs> the panel in isolation in the void was lovely. Loved it. Yeah. I Am Duke is early echoes of Damn the Spice. Oh, you know, totally. We're, we're starting to see the beginnings of the Duke we know and love in the actual book. Yeah. He's got that courage to take a stand for what he believes. For sure. Love it. Even if it means locking his mother in a tower. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Our next scene picks up, and we are on Planet X. We've moved. We're on a whole new planet. And Planet X is now fully under control of the Benny Tleilax, Tleilaxu Masters. And we are with Sater, who is uh, actually son of the Ixian ambassador to the Imperial capital. And broadly, things are not going well. So Sater is just around. He's kind of wandering about, and he's monologuing kind of giving us this exposition. He has a brother, Demur, who is currently undergoing treatment to become a spacing guild navigator. And while that's happening far, far, far away, he's stuck on planet X. And man, the city's fucked up. Mm -hmm. 
this like beautiful metropolis that we saw through Leto's tourist eyes, this beautiful, you know, underground technological metropolis is really looking awfully different these days. The Tleilaxu Masters have torn apart the newest guild highliners that Dominic Vernius had constructed, probably single-handedly based solely on his mustache. Like, he probably built them from scratch himself. <laughs> that man's man. Good Lord, he's Absolutely. great. <laughs> but the Tleilaxu are, they've kind of disassembled that and they've taken over the laboratories. Right. I did want to kind of remind us why the Highliners was a big deal. And for this, I actually had to go all the way back to issue one. Um, Kind of feels like this would be a better experience, not separated by like two months per issue, (laughs) uh, because I legitimately forgot. I was like, wait, (laughs) why why are the fancy new ships a bad thing? I, I don't remember. Basically, back in issue one, Dominic Vernius was like, yo, I I have these brand new Highliners. They're going to be great. They hold so much more stuff. They've got a great cargo capacity. And Elrud was like, no, that's bad because we tax based solely on the number of trips. So more efficient ships that hold more means fewer taxes. And I got to say, maybe it just took me nine issues to realize how dumb that is. (laughs) Just fucking change the tax structure. What are you doing? Tax the goods and not the trucks? What the fuck kind of policy is this? Tax it by pallets. I don't know what the fuck to tell you. This is the future of actual... We solved that problem today. We have a solution to that. Ever heard of a tariff? Like, what are you doing, my guy? It's so weird. It's bizarre. Uh, but for that reason, the Tleilaxu masters are like, yes, yes, we're doing what Elrud wants. We're taking apart these big fancy ships. Now, these panels are mostly just a tear wandering around Ix and giving us exposition. We're just hearing his thoughts. Right. And he does point out at one point that the Tleilaxu seem to be up to something in these Ixian laboratories that they have captured. He doesn't know what, but there appear to be ulterior motives here, totally. which we, of course, know is the Artificial Spice Project. Right, right. Now, the next few panels, <laughs> we're, we're done with the walking around and the exposition, and it's time for Satir to do something. The next few panels defy explanation, but we're going to try our best here. Satir yeah. reminds us that, quote, instant communication across interstellar distances is not possible due to the laws of physics, end quote. Which, okay. sure, weird time to start talking laws of physics in Dune, but will believe you on this. I also am not sure that interstellar communication is not possible because I feel like Holtzman should have already created that by this point. Like the Holtzman wave, yeah. Anyway, whatever. We'll take Satir's word for it. It's hard to FaceTime someone across the galaxy. <laughs> True, sure. He pulls out this toaster-looking box and puts on a headset, and apparently, because he has a twin, his twin brother Demur, he can use this toaster to communicate instantly, although... Not without some risk, which we'll see in a bit. Right. And it works, as advertised. <laughs> Far away on the planet Junction, the Spacing Guild Central Planet, his brother gets a phone call. Right. And he answers Satir's FaceTime. Right. So Demur on Junction is in this kind of vat of spice gas and is undergoing kind of the quote-unquote training to become a navigator, Right. This, like, amplification of his prescient abilities through immersion in spice. Right. And 
Like navigators, we get a number of descriptions of them throughout the books. They're kind of described in Dune and, and Messiah as kind of fish people. In this, they really are kind of like this fiery cloud of a, of a being. I mean, it's honestly striking. Yeah. Like, it's genuinely beautiful. These panels The are, art's spectacular. The art's so nice. I don't know that it makes sense, but it's very cool. Yeah. And you're right. This toaster delivers on its promise. It also makes good toast. <laughs> Sater delivers his message. He's like, yo, what's up, bro? And his brother's like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> Struggling to think normally, right? Demur is in a place of constant spice probably he's constantly high on spice and struggling to think like a normal mortal dude who's kind of confined to thinking right here and now right right plus the inexplicable like holographic face of his brother is some suddenly appearing (laughs) in front of him right which i too would be like what the fuck is happening i'm a little high right now and my brother is talking to me and i can see him his head is floating in front of me. Mintat projection. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> yeah. Also, Mintat computation. Huh? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So I actually understand Demur's confusion in this scene as well. You're right that it is partly because of his like spice trance that he's in. He's undergoing this biological change to become a navigator. And he can't quite understand what's happening. But I also, in my head canon, like to think he's literally like, what is happening? Right. That's a good point. So Sater tells his brother that the Tleilaxu have taken over Ix. But before they can really clarify what's going on, they have to end the call because Sater has this splitting headache. Right. This toaster that makes great toast <laughs> and sends calls across the galaxy is an experimental piece of tech. So he's forced to cut off the phone call. Right. Now, the next day picks up with Sater. He's recovered from his terrible headache because he pops some Advil or something and basically obtains an access card to these secret laboratories from a Tleilaxu master. Now, if you were to imagine a complex, thoroughly thought out, well-calculated plan you'd be way overestimating Sater because he basically just breaks a dude's neck and then goes through his pockets. <laughs> Did this take weeks? Is he like, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'll mug him. Yeah. I, none, of, none of this matters. This is just so to get someone from yeah. point A to point B. Definitely. And that wraps up our time on X for now. Right. Look, there's a reason his brother got picked to be a navigator and Satera's <laughs> stuck on Ix. There's always one sibling that's better. We all know it. <laughs> I, I say that as the better sibling. I hope you remind your siblings of that all the time. <laughs> all the time. In the next scene, we are on Chiton, mm-hmm. and our boy Emperor Elrude the Ninth isn't looking super great, <laughs> which is to say he's dead. He has died in bed. And without missing a beat, Shaddam, standing over his father's dead corpse, <laughs> leans over to Fenring and says, Ha, not that it was unexpected. End quote. <laughs> and before you call him out okay. on literally confessing to the crime in front of everybody here. They're not alone, to be clear. There's a bunch of people in the room. <laughs> there's a bunch of people in the room. Attendants, other palace <laughs> folks. Yeah. 
everyone's got to chill out because okay. it's totally okay. Oh. He put his hand up to his mouth. Oh. And thus, as we know, law of secrecy, no one heard what he said here out loud. Wait, I'll be, let me try this. Let me try this out, okay? I'm going to lift my yeah, hand yeah, to yeah. my face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hand to your mouth. Yep. And then I'm going to say something, and you can all see if this works, okay? Yeah, of course. Say it. Did you hear me? Did you hear what I said? No, dude. Oh, sweet. <laughs> I think that- It works. I'm going to start using that everywhere. It would be funny if I edited that and just took out whatever I said. <laughs> I think you should. Or you should put in some static or something. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fenring then declares Shaddam IV the next emperor of the known galaxy. And with the biggest shit-eating grin ever, Shaddam watches as everybody in the room bows to him. Right. Real subtle shit from our boy Shaddam. <laughs> he then orders Fenring to cremate his father's body, get rid of any evidence that there was poison involved, and orders the Tulalax who experiments at Ix to kick into overdrive. Right. He needs that artificial spice, folks, and he needs it now. Cool. Subtlety aside, let's get back to Ix. Fenring just arrived. Hey, we're still with Fenring. New planet, same guy. Fenring arrived to deliver this message to the Tleilaxu. Fake spice, go, go, go. We won it yesterday. Come on, hurry up. The Tleilaxu are like, we hear you. Sounds great. Let's give you a tour. Let's show you all <laughs> of our secrets. Let's go. This will be fun. And they explain, you know, what? our experts are studying the DNA in the organic molecules found in melange. So that makes sense. That's actually, I was going to say to Brian's credit, that's actually pretty spot on. Like that is the approach that the Tleilaxu would have in studying spice. Mm -hmm. They are bioengineers, all of them. So for sure, brilliant move here. So I will issue a few points to Brian for this. Mm -hmm. We then have to revoke all points from him <laughs> because <laughs> then the Tleilaxu <laughs> masters are like, and continuing our tour, here are our axolotl tanks. Oh, my God. And the Tleilaxu masters are like, well, we're not going to tell you anything about them, but here they are. Look at them. There they are. Now, the axolotl tank, as it is claimed to be, is shown to be a big metal and glass contraption. Just a very big, exactly what you would picture in like, I don't know, X-Men yeah. when they go to like some secret lab or something. Yeah. And that's not what axolotl tanks are. Nope. We are told what axolotl tanks are in, I think it's Chapter House. And I know this is a spoiler episode. I'll just say they are not made of glass and metal. No. <laughs> so just want to make clear my problems with this panel. First of all, it's not an axolotl tank. Full stop. Nope. Second of all, and this is really the big problem. The Tleilaxu masters would never show an off-worlder, a Pawinda, an axolotl tank, ever. Period. Like, canonically, in Dune, it's 4,000 more years before someone goes, we know you have axolotl tanks. And they go, maybe. <laughs> 4,000 years later, they are not spreading the word. Let us show you our tanks. Look, there they are. No. Yeah. <laughs> This is, it's insane. And also, again, my continued issues with some of these prequel series is you are changing when information gets out and that changes primary canon. That contradicts 
primary canon and makes conversations in actual Dune, the actual six books, make no goddamn sense, even remotely. Yep. Fenring is married to a Bene Gesserit. We see that in one of these issues. And the Bene Gesserit sisterhood as a whole, you know, the ones with other memory, <laughs> don't find out about axolotl tanks that until 4,000 years later, this is bonkers wrong. It's insane. It's bonkers wrong. <laughs> it flies in the face of the actual Dune canon. And we've had some folks email us like, oh, why don't you consider Brian's stuff canon? Why don't you blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this is why, this. folks. <laughs> this right here. We're not talking like small contradictions where he like changed dates. Right plus or minus 10 years or he even even like large things like changing someone's home planet but this general arc of their characters the same cool whatever we can let that slide this is just shitting on the actual dune lore when we know as you've stated axolotl tanks are a top secret benny Tlalax thing yeah that they spend thousands of years hiding and really only reveal when they are forced to this is an example of why Brian's works are so contradictory to the original lore. It's not the small <sighs> tweaks and changes. It is the massive things that literally change the context and conversations that happen in Frank's original six books. Okay, I will say, full disclosure, did not check this chapter in the actual original book. So it is technically possible. Maybe this was an addition. I don't know. I did want to point that out there. I'll I'll look into it after this. I promise you I will. And next episode, when we cover 11 and 12, I'll apologize if maybe this was an addition to the comic that wasn't in the original book. But yeah, we're going to complain about a horse later. That's a small thing. <laughs> That's a small issue. This is a central secret. Yep. It is so wrong for it to be mentioned casually in a tour of a place. Absolutely. This is not Willy Wonka showing six <laughs> children all of his slave labor. <laughs> <sighs> God, I need to take a breath. Augustus Gloop. Augustus Gloop. Great big greedy nincompoop. <laughs> I'm going to turn you into a worm. <laughs> all right. Anyway, this section of the comic ends with Fenring repeating his point from the top. Hurry up. We need that artificial spice right away. And it's worth pointing out that Axolotl issues aside, there's also issues with Fenring's character all throughout this series, but in particular in the two issues we covered today, his defining characteristic in Dune is, quote, a killer with the manners of a rabbit. This is the most dangerous kind, end quote. That's how he's described. And all throughout these pages, he's this like brutish caricature of what is supposed to be a very conniving, intelligent, deadly man. Yeah. He's walking around being like, get me the spice now. The emperor demands it. Yeah. Like making empty threats. It's this is not the guy who figured out a way of subtly poisoning Elrude and killing him. Like even in the same series, Fenring is one of my favorite characters in all of Dune. And he's done so dirty in this series. Yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway. Compare this Fenring Tleilaxu interaction with the Fenring Baron interaction in the first book. He's there to threaten both those people. And it's so different. Right. Yeah. Okay. Take a breather, folks. We're almost done with this issue. <sighs> okay. In our second to last scene of issue number nine, we join Baron Harkonnen, Beast Raban, and Piter DeVry University deep <sighs> underground on Giddy Prime. Go Monarch Butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the Baron 
inexplicably curses Shaddam's name. I'm kind of confused. Has the Baron ever had an interaction with Shaddam? What's going on here? Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, Piter and the Beast panic. They're like, no, dude, you can't say (laughs) shit like that out loud. Yeah, he might be listening. He might be listening. And again, this is just another character assassination. Piter DeVry University, our cold, calculated, twisted mentat, would not be shivering in his fucking boots about spies. (laughs) He'd be into it. He's like, yeah, (laughs) woo, fuck him. That guy sucks. Oh, I love this. (laughs) So weird. These are not the characters we know from Dune. (sighs) Nevertheless, the Baron is confident. It's all good, guys. I can say whatever the fuck I want in this room because a Richesian researcher named Chobin created no field technology and installed it for the Baron in this room. Hmm. Interesting. Another (laughs) thing that does not exist in Dune canon for thousands of years. No field technology doesn't come into play until Heretics and Chapter House. Thousands of years from the current timeline. I mean, to to be 100% accurate, we know that Hui Nuri was like raised in a no room. Right. One of the first experimental no rooms. One of the first. And it was something that Leto too, who knows fucking everything ever, <laughs> was like, I, I wonder if that's possible. Oh, shit. It, like, this is so yeah. weird and wrong. Why? Why make... Anyway. Why? Sorry. I'll, I'll Why? stop interrupting. Anyway. <laughs> No field technology yeah. apparently fucking exists. The Baron, in a classic Baron move, built out a memorial of the construction team. We can see their bodies in this giant wall in this room in some sort of attempt to keep this technology exclusive to the Harkonnens so no one else can have it. Right. Kind of classically, you, you kill the construction team so that the secrets are kept. Exactly. <laughs> we then get... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, I need this. Maybe I'll just grab these panels and make something out of this. Yeah, this needs to be printed out somewhere and framed. We get these fabulous couple of panels where the Baron asks Piter, hey, what's going on on X? (laughs) I can't even describe it. Piter takes a huge swig of juice of Sappho and then with this like literal feral look in his eye, Says out loud, ha, now I can concentrate better. (laughs) And then he gives a bunch of exposition, covering what we as the reader already know, basically getting the Baron caught up on issues one through eight. Man, that is me every morning with a cup of coffee. (laughs) Just big old swig and then, ah, now I can concentrate better. (laughs) It's the, for me, it's the pacing from the Baron, the panel of the Baron asking what's going on on X. (laughs) To just this weird series of panels of Piter not acknowledging that question and <laughs> instead taking a shot. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. It's it's the artwork and the pacing of the panels that does it for me. It's such an awkward scene. It's because, you know, in the world of like how much time is a panel of art, you know, like how much time passes. Yeah. It does kind of read that <laughs> Piter takes like six minutes to like <laughs> drink some juice of Sappho. It's <laughs> so funny and again the art's great (laughs) all right all of that sappho juice craziness aside (laughs) baron gets to the heart of it right if shaddam is successful with the tleilaxu in creating this artificial spice house harkonnen will lose its monopoly on the substance recall that they at this point are the owners of the fiefdom of arrakis right 
they all agree that they need to prevent this in any way possible. And they land on a plan to entangle Tleilaxu in a war with some other house. Right. And of course, the house they decide is House Atreides. Right. Leto, as we know, is a young, inexperienced duke. He will definitely be attending the emperor's coronation. You don't turn that invitation down. Right. And there will be an opportunity to strike using this new no-field technology that they inexplicably have. So they're putting a plan together to pit Tleilaxu against House Atreides. I feel like this is a somewhat good plan. I like this idea of like playing galactic powers against one another. It doesn't exactly like read like a Harkonnen move. I feel like House Harkonnen is very direct. They like to be personally involved in attacks and raids and like they want to be in the room when like the murders happen and framing people to start a war feels a little bit more like a Carino move or more like a, you know, like a other, some other house. But it is a very Dune thing. Like it's a very Dune move. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Let's get to this final scene and wrap up this issue. Our final scene brings us back to Kaladin and our young Duke is with his friends, Romber and Kaylee. They're going through his dad's stuff with him. <laughs> we kind of pick him through some big chests as they prepare to sort of put memories of Paulus to rest. And among this light conversation and sort of, oh, you know, passing time, he does reflect that clearly his mother is implicated in this obvious murder mm-hmm. and has exiled her. Off page, he exiled her to the eastern continent, uh, although he hasn't told anybody what they discovered or kind of his reasoning. We also find out <laughs> during this conversation <laughs> that Stablemaster, Mustache Man, <laughs> remember he was being interrogated using Mintat techniques? Right. He died <laughs> during interrogation <laughs> through fear. Through fear, what did you do? Oh my God. <laughs> you killed him through fear. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Mintat projection. Oops. <laughs> well, he's dead. Damn. <laughs> I said interrogate, not stab over and over. <laughs> he gets those confused. He's getting old. It's fine. Oh, my gosh. Brutal. Yeah. And we're here now with Kaylee as she reflects remorsefully on her family's fate, right? Worldly possessions gone. All of their property gone. Father is exiled. At this point, they have gotten word of Shando's fate on Bella Tagus. She was murdered by bounty hunters, basically. And uh, in this moment, Leto comforts her and offers her the help of House Atreides, which she has clearly already, my guy. But I appreciate it. Again, it's a nice gesture. It's a nice thing to yeah. tell her. And they as a group also then reflect on the Seleucid bull's head that killed Paulus, which at this point is now mounted. We saw this in Dune, of course. That's the bull that killed the old duke, as we're told in the first Dune book. And it's mounted, and it's in the dining hall. And Leto actually delivers something that I think is quite nice. I, I really like this. It's a, it's a cool thought. Yeah, me too. You know, Romber and Kaylee are like, that's morbid. <laughs> that's the animal that killed your dad. Leto responds, quote, It's a reminder that I must never let my guard down. A mere animal can bring down the leader of a great house of the Landsrad. End quote. And honestly, hell yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's really solid. And it is a very Duke Leto thing to say. This idea of 
recognize your weaknesses, recognize your morality, live with honor, that sort of thing. Right. It's cool. I I liked this part. That was cool. After we're all done reflecting on that bull, though, the fear burst in the room with some big news. (laughs) Emperor Elrude IX is dead. Mintat projection. He's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Mintat computation BYOB. (laughs) The coronation is going to take place on Kaiten. Uh And of course, young Leto is invited. Right. And the fear confirms that while Elrude was kind of a bastard, kind of had bad blood with the Atreides, they are hopeful, and particularly young Leto is hopeful, that Shaddam will be different, that he will be more amicable towards House Atreides. Right. And as the Harkonnens had it suspected, he accepts the invitation to the official coronation on Kaiten. Right. He then ends the chapter on this hyper-optimistic note. He declares that he and Prince Rambar will go to the coronation together to plead amnesty for House Vernius, and everything will work out great He's sure of it. Just an exiled house walking into the capital, begging for forgiveness. Nothing could go wrong. Nothing could go wrong. And perhaps that's a reminder of just how young he is. What a well-written story this is. (laughs) (laughs) But at least things are looking up for Leto, right? Things are going to turn out good. That's good. I'm positive. (sighs) Okay. Well, that's issue nine (laughs) in the books. We'll talk about kind of takeaways at the end. We are now going to take a quick break because issue 10 is a trip in <laughs> just the worst way. <laughs> but we're going to take a break now. We'll be right back. Stick around. We've got one more issue to get through. Welcome back, everyone. Yeah. Let's dive now into issue 10. <laughs> so this next issue begins on Castle Kaladin, right. where young Leto is getting that fresh fit. She. For Shaddam's coronation. Right. He's at the tailors. He's getting this dazzling green and gold cape tunic looking thing. And honestly, it looks kind of great. Yeah, looks good. Again, props to the artwork. He's also emphasizing how important all of this is. A lot rides on this visit to the capital and on this coronation. Right. He's got to make a good impression as a young duke. He's got to beg for House Vernius's amnesty. And he's got to get on Shaddam's good side. Right. That's a lot to ask of a young duke. Totally. Romber also shows up. He's also in a fresh fit. He's rocking the purple colors of House Vernius. And Kaylee also joins them and expresses her sadness that she doesn't get to tag along. Why isn't she invited to the big party at the Capitol? Leto and Romber are quick to remind her, though, that this is not just a party they're going to. It's super dangerous. Things might go horribly wrong. And everything is on the line here for both of their houses. I'll point out here, (laughs) you mentioned earlier how bold it is for a member of an exiled house to just saunter into a big party (laughs) dressing in your house's bright purple color yeah really does add to the boldness it reminds me i don't know if our listeners watch the witcher quick internal plug for winds howling one of your other projects abu uh one of the best witcher podcasts out there i can say as someone not involved with it love it oh thank you thank you no problem but does remind me a little bit of what's the what's the chaos witch's name main main girl uh yennefer does remind me of yennefer on the run hiding sought after wearing a bright purple cape everywhere she goes (laughs) like yen listen love you great character a lot of fun uh maybe fucking chill out on the bright colors (laughs) yeah you are 
conspicuous as fuck. So that's how I feel. Romber taking a page out of uh, Unifer's book here. Yeah, definitely. Now, the next kind of scene, we're still with Leto. We're still on Caladan. He walks, lantern in hand. It's nighttime. He can't sleep. This is a problem he continues to have through Dune. Just can't sleep at night. Walks, lantern in hand, to his father's looming portrait. And kind of reflecting on his dad's passing, he hears a sound from the Hall of Swords. You'll never guess what they keep there. (laughs) The sound came from none other than Duncan motherfucking Idaho. Hey! What a rock climber. He is cleaning Paulus's sword. Sounds like a euphemism, but it's not. It's just a big sword, and he's cleaning it to, quote-unquote, pay his respects, which I'm like, I don't... What? What are you talking about? Yeah. It's like three in the morning. It, I don't know. Whatever. Right. Duncan asks, yo, are, are you going to keep fighting bulls? <laughs> Didn't turn out well for your dad. Are you going to do that? Leto's like, fuck that. No. Are you kidding me? Dad died from a bull. That's a, that's a dumb question. Yeah. But... Duncan has a good reason to ask this. His job title is officially stable hand. So (laughs) he's like, my job is taking care of the bulls who fight. So I am wondering what I can do for you now. Leto is like, you know what? I know you have no experience other than escaping slavery and two weeks of uh, taking care of bulls, part of which killed my father. Uh, But I see you're cleaning this sword. Do you want to like be a sword person (laughs) do you want (laughs) to do sword things and duncan is like that's crazy let's go crazier oh my god quote will you send me to the weapon schools of ginaz so i can become a sword master my guy end quote duncan two weeks ago was offered a receptionist job and he's like yeah but okay can you send me to ceo school to be a ceo The fucking, the balls on this kid. Right. Listen, to Brian's credit, <laughs> Paulus pointed that out. What is it? Any man with balls that size. <laughs> it's incredible. It's really just, it's amazing. Oh my God. And Leto responds, somewhat acknowledging the absurdity of it. He's like, listen, train first, use the sword a bit. See if you even like doing sword stuff and maybe it'll happen. And uh, you know what? Something tells me it's going to happen. Yeah. And that something is called Dune by Frank (laughs) Herbert. A much better book. (laughs) No no kidding. Jesus. In the next scene, we are on Giddy Prime, back with the Baron, Piter, and Beast Raban. Nice. And they have got this dope-looking Wonder Woman-style invisible ship that they're checking out. Whoa, cool. And it turns out that this ship has been outfitted by Chobin himself right. with his no-field technology. Right. And Chobin's actually here to explain. Quote, My unique no-field will block all sensor signatures across the entire spectrum. Nothing like it has ever been invented. It will mask this entire vessel from view. End quote. Right. And the Baron, <laughs> or maybe Beast Raban, they're both like red-headed, knuckle-headed, like, bros and it's the way they're drawn it's like impossible to tell who's who yeah one of them says you're saying you can make the entire craft invisible a ghost ship and direct quote. quote direct quote. direct yeah. quote yeah oh my god i i'm gonna just let that quote speak for itself 
Once I, the Baron, I I won't. So <laughs> <laughs> a no field. It doesn't make shit invisible. It's just it. I don't. Okay, this is my problem because I'm just gonna say what you were about to say, which is the next uh-huh. bullet point, which is that. They kill him. Yep. They're like, you didn't tell anybody about this. Chopin says, yeah, I didn't tell anybody about this. And then they kill him. Sure. Sure. To be clear, if this is a no field, like the ones we encounter later in Dune, 4,000 years later, the fact that someone figured it out means that someone else would fucking figure it out. <laughs> we have no reason to think that Chobin is like a Holtzman style, like Chobin just being a guy from Ix or Cheese is just one of the people from Ix or Cheese, and there would be someone else to do the same thing. <sighs> it's just bizarre. The idea of it being invisible is so frustrating for some reason, because that's not how no fields work, but may- I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. I'll stop interrupting eventually. Ghost ship. Ghost ship? <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. Now, I said it already, but I'll say it again. Uh, he says, yeah, haven't told a single person. Raban breaks his neck, killing him. There is kind of a funny moment where I think it's Piter or maybe Baron goes, I hope we don't need him in the future. Yeah. <laughs> I did turn to the source novel in this moment. And this was the first time I did because I was angry that I couldn't tell Baron and Beast apart. So I was really surprised at how different this chapter of the prequel novel is from the comic. Naturally, An adaptation from novel to comic is going to have a lot of changes, but legitimately it was a baffling number of changes. So much more than I thought makes sense, and it honestly made a chapter that reads kind of well. It at least read. Like, it at least was like, oh yeah, this is a book. (laughs) This whole scene in the comic is like clunky, and the timing's weird, and the dialogue's almost a parody of comics. Somehow, this comic has made a clunky, frustrating story even clunkier and even more frustrating. And I don't know why. Yeah. Like, it's Brian and Kevin J. Anderson writing the comic, and then there's an editor and an assistant editor. How did it not get better? How did it get worse? Right. I don't I don't get it. Some questions in this universe just don't have answers, Leah. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's return to the story, get through issue 10 here. Yeah. Back on Kaladin, Leto and Romber take off for the Highliner, ready to head to this coronation. Right. Leto is betting that Shaddam IV would rather have House Atreides as an ally than the Tleilaxu. Sure. And he plans to use this bargaining chip as a way to bid for House Avernius's future. Right. Kaylee bids them farewell, once again reminding everyone how dangerous this is. Right. At this point, everyone has said it like five times. <laughs> is it dangerous? <laughs> Mintat projection. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so they join the traffic in space headed towards this eyeliner, and apparently Dukes don't get special privilege when it comes to space traffic because uh, they have a couple hours to kill, it turns out, as everyone else boards. Right. They decide to uh, get some training in. Right. Some space shooting practice. The fear takes them to this combat pod thing, Mm -hmm. and they start flying this little miniature ship and use it for space combat, and they're shooting at these drones that are flying around. Uh, So I guess it's totally okay for these two young boys to be shooting live ammunition while waiting in traffic. (laughs) 
In space. <laughs> Happens all the time in L.A. Just a lot of traffic, live ammunition, target practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So imagine it's just L.A. in space. Finally, they get onto the Highliner and they look around and realize, wow, there's a lot of other houses and groups here on this Highliner. That's a lot of potential threats, y'all. Right. Safety may be a concern. And the fear is like, nah, quote, <laughs> A Highliner hold is designated neutral territory, my lord. No shields, no weapons, no hostilities of any kind. It is forbidden by Spacing Guild law and the Great Convention. End quote. (laughs) I'm a little worried that the guy who's head of security, his game plan is, it's fine, everyone will follow the rules, I'm sure. No one has (laughs) ever done something bad ever. Oh my gosh. Oof. Well, in our next scene... We're introduced to a fascinating choice. Pardo Kynes. Hey! Best hair model, terrible husband. We are back on planet Arrakis, and Pardo has a horse. (laughs) He is on horseback, on Arrakis, and I've got a question. Uh Uh-huh. Mentat projection. Where did he get the horse? Where did that come from? (laughs) Now, first of all, horses are a thing. Yes. They're horses with more legs. And they're huge. They're really big. Horses. They they exist in Dune. I mean, I, I think they're even mentioned as like something that's shipped from one planet to another. But they, they are not mentioned as something on Arrakis, at least as far as Frank's writings up until this point in the timeline, right? Like much later on. Right. Sure. But not right now. And I was so baffled by this mention, like by this appearance of the horse. I did a word search of Brian's book because I, I wanted an explanation. I wanted to see like maybe there was some extra context. Oh, I got this horse from so-and-so. And fun fact, the only time the word comes up is a stallion that Paulus Atreides rides into the Plaza del Toros before his final fight, much earlier in the story. So this was an addition to the comic. Like this chapter with Pardo. It goes out of its way to be like, he's on foot. They're traveling on foot. It's a big deal. He's on foot. Whoa, he's on foot. Look how comfortable he is. On foot. And then he's in a horse in the comic. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. He knows how to ride worms at this point, probably. Put him on a worm. Yeah. I don't understand. They wrote the book. And then they're adapting it and making it different in ways that don't make any sense. I am... I, it's just, it's as if they don't care about their own story, or maybe this is being, I don't know, ghostwritten, or maybe it's being adapted by people who don't know anything about Dune. It's so strange. I mean, that much is clear, but... Yeah, <laughs> fair. I, that's true. That's not speculation. <laughs> that's a mentat projection, <laughs> if ever I've given one. For real. <laughs> Ugh. Horse crisis aside, <laughs> Pardo has also received word that El Rude, the ninth, has died. Sure. And we learned that he has been dodging sending reports to Kaiten for a long time now. Yeah. He literally has the thought, oh, maybe I should do that. Meh. <laughs> so great hair model, terrible father, terrible husband. You can't yeah. be perfect, y'all. Sure. Pardo, his wife, Fraith, and the baby are suddenly set upon by a Harkonnen ship. They run undercover and the horse is shredded by the blasters. Oh. Just absolutely, utterly torn apart. And this panel makes me wonder, is this why the horse was included? So the ship could shoot at something? Just to, like, 
include death where there didn't need to be death. <laughs> it seems on brand. That's my only explanation. Yeah, that could be. Either way, before the Harkonnen ship can find Pardo and his family, this beautifully illustrated sequence of panels shows us the ship getting blasted out of the air, and Kynes explains, oh, this is my team from the Blaster Basin Project. Come with me. I got to show you something. And he shows his wife this secret testing site, this lush underground garden that showcases his plans for a green Arrakis. This, he explains, is how he will convince the Fremen that his dream can become a reality. Which, okay, wait. (laughs) She's utterly convinced. She sees this garden, this sprawling garden space, butterflies, you know, things. Great. Ignores the fact that this is underground. Cool. You did it. You have like a underground garden. That does not mean anything. Like maybe there will be challenges being in the open fucking sun of Arrakis. And the other thing is like she is blown away. She's like, oh my God, I can't believe you have open running water underground (laughs) in a siege, right? Mm -hmm. We know that in 10,191 AG, the Fremen have over 100 million gallons of water in basins collected under their sieges. Right. I mean, unless Fraith is just out of the loop, she's not on that mailing list. She's not getting the weekly distrans. <laughs> this either means they haven't yet collected that. And in the next like 40 to 50 years, they're going to collect over 100 million gallons of water purely because of Pardo. Or this is just wrong, which is like seeming more and more likely to be the explanation. Yeah, that seems to be the explanation for a lot. (laughs) Yeah. In the next scene, we are back with Shaddam IV and Hazemir Fenring as they stroll the Imperial Palace Gardens on Kaiten. Right. And from their conversation, we learn a couple of things. One, the artificial spice project is going to take a while. Two... Shaddam doesn't like the Tleilaxu. Same. We can relate there. <laughs> yep. Gross. Three, the coronation plants have all been set. We're good to go. It's going to be the greatest party of the year. And four, and perhaps most importantly, the Bene Gesserit wants a meeting. Right. And so the Bene Gesserit arrive and they chat. And Hezemir tells Shaddam that the Bene Gesserit have a plan to cement his new rule. Right. They want him to marry one of their own. And the Bene Gesserit representative explains that he can't be seen to be too buddy-buddy with one of the great houses. But since the Bene Gesserit have their influence all across the Imperium, one of their sisters can marry him and act as his advisor and lover and wife. Right. I don't know what your read on this was, Leo, but this justification made basically no sense to me. (laughs) Yeah. Like, what is her sales pitch here? What is she? Why is she like, you need to marry a Benny Gesserit? Right. I like don't understand what the advantage here is to Shaddam. What is he getting out of this? Right, right. I need the Benny Gesserit to send me their pitch deck, honestly. I mean, we know that the Benny Gesserit started making major plays to be involved in all imperial politics starting now 10,000 years ago. It seems strange to me that they would even need this meeting. Uh huh. At this point, Shaddam IV should be like, yo, I'm emperor. How quickly can I get a Bene Gesserit to help me out and to be my like wife and lover and provider of heirs? You know, like, yeah, 
it, it is strange that this is a meeting that's brought to them. And there's one more thing that's kind of weird about this. But before we get to that, we do meet Anarul, who is a Bene Gesserit of hidden rank. And Shaddam says, quote, this is really quite romantic. Brace yourselves. This is beautiful. I, I can't. This brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> quote, she is beautiful enough and I accept your reasons. Make the arrangements. End quote. Wow. And wow. I know. Ring, ring, ring. Uh, Hallmark, I got something for you. <laughs> you are beautiful enough, and I accept your reasons. <laughs> it's lovely. It's so sweet. Yeah. What's Vanessa Hudgens up to? <laughs> she would eat that roll up. Now, I was ready to tear into Brian for such a stupid-ass name. Anna Roll? Are you kidding me? Mother of Irulan? Clearly an anagram? Yeah. But I checked it, and you know what? This is one of the rare instances where it was a decision of Frank. Anna Rule is literally the mother of Irulan. There was definitely a 30-minute period where I was raging against Brian. Listen, this time, Brian, you didn't do anything wrong. I apologize. My bad. I know when I fucked up, I fucked up. This time, you didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. This time. And I will say, Anna Rule, anagram of Irulan, still a dumb name. <laughs> yeah. No, True. Like, I'm not going to hold back against Frank either. Like, that's silly. That's, yeah. I agree. <laughs> Very strange. Okay, we're nearly to the end of issue 10, folks. Hold your horses <laughs> or your thorses. Where'd you get your horses? Why are they here? <laughs> Explain yourselves. Hold your horses and then put them in a different book. They don't belong here. In our penultimate scene, Beast Raban is aboard this Highliner in his ghost ship, uh -huh. the invisible ship protected by Chobin's no field. Right. He makes his way from the docked Harkonnen frigate over to where the House Atreides frigate is parked, mm -hmm. and he positions himself just so that when he fires upon the Tleilaxu, it looks like the Atreides did it. Uh-oh. <laughs> we also learned that the reason House Atreides and Tleilaxu are parked right next to each other is apparently because of a bribe from House Harkonnen. Right. Which is notable because the guild would know that. The guild would be like, yeah, we don't know why, but House Harkonnen wanted the Flaylaxu and the Atreides to be next to each other. And then here is this completely unexplained attack from the Atreides on the Tleilaxu. Yeah. And the guild with a clear paper trail to the only people in the universe who would set this sort of thing up, even without an explanation for how it was done, the guild is like, well, we have no reason to think it's anyone other than House Atreides. <laughs> Follow the money. It's in the Space and Guild record somewhere. You don't need to be Sherlock Holmes to like connect <laughs> <Yeah>. these dots. <laughs> right. Follow the Solaris. It's there. It's, <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Anyway, the Tleilaxu are first panicked and then pissed. And they, I guess, like broadcast out to everyone these fucking tattletales that the attack came from the Atreides ship. And Romber and Leto are understandably confused. They don't know what the fuck is happening and why the Tleilaxu were calling them out. Right. And at this point, Leto also makes this comment that no weapons are allowed inside a Highliner, which, hold that thought for just a second, because that's going to come back in a weirder, twisted way in just a little bit here. Right. They get a video call from the Tleilaxu. They hop on Zoom, and the Tleilaxu are preparing to return fire. They're powering up. The literal weapons on their ship. <laughs> wait, a, wait a second. Those aren't allowed. <laughs> <laughs> quote, we will return fire on the Atreides. We are within our rights. End quote. I, 
I don't think that's how what rights that works. What are you talking about, my guy? <laughs> Listen, he shot at me. I'm on an airplane. He shot at me with his gun. It's now totally allowed for me to shoot back at him with my gun. The airline's like, who let guns onto the ship? Crazy. Doesn't make any sense. Poor Thufir is like short circuiting over there because his computations are <laughs> blowing up in his face. Who would break the rules? That projection. What? <laughs> <laughs> Mentat computation, huh? <laughs> Nevertheless, Leto jumps into action. He activates his own ship's shields, which will, as we're told, apparently disrupt the navigators and interfere with the Holtzman engines on this Highliner. Sure. Okay. We have to just believe what Thufir is saying about that because, you know, we don't exactly know how Holtzman technology works. Yeah. But it does feel a little bit like... All of this is just convoluted plot stuff to move things forward and build fake tension. Right. But there we go. Shields disrupt the Highliner. Sure. Raban returns to his Harkonnen frigate, and there, with Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, they start popping champagne. They're like, wow, look at how great this plan is going. Everything went perfectly. Right. But hold on. What is Leto doing over there? He activated his shields in fold space, which apparently... Knocked the Highliner out of void space. Right. Or out of fold space. I I don't know how they reference it in this comic. I think fold space is the term that's used. Okay. But also, in Brian Cannon, I think they talk about it being instantaneous, like literally point A to point B immediately, which I realized does make this whole scene make no sense. <laughs> but it also kind of justifies how, because a lot in this book is just, you know, character a is on this planet and then he, they go oh i'm gonna go to planet this other planet and then they're just there immediately well i guess if it's instantaneous sure so if we take brian at his word that it's you know immediate travel sure but then what the fuck is this whole scene yeah like what what is this just time dilation i don't understand it makes no sense yeah. and honestly let's blast through the rest of this issue because uh we're just twisting ourselves into knots trying to figure this shit out makes sense yeah Thufir has used his iconic computations to figure out that the Atreides have been framed for this attack. Uh, great job, my guy. <laughs> a guild navigator hovers over in his big golden pod, which genuinely, once again, looks really, really cool. The navigators, how they're drawn and colored in these pages. Right. So cool. Looks great. Yeah. Really dope stuff. The navigator basically is like, yo, Leto, stop. Like, why'd you <laughs> activate the shields? Stop You're not that. supposed to do this. <laughs> yeah. Why is everybody fighting? He's like big parent energy here. Yeah. And he's just like, bro, if y'all don't settle down, kids, I'm going to turn this Highliner around, buddy. Right. Leto then evokes something called the trial by forfeiture and demands protection for House Atreides until that trial, until that court date. And the navigator agrees to these terms. We literally have no idea what that means. So TBD on what the fuck that could be. Sure. The last panel of this scene is the fear just looking absolutely shook at Leto evoking this trial. Right. But nevertheless, Leto is steadfast. He's standing up for what he believes in, and he is going to do his best to prevent an all-out war. Yeah. Some qualities of Leto Atreides accurately portrayed. Yep. Now, in our final scene of issue 10, we join Anna Rule and Margot, soon to be Fenring, back on Chiton as they discuss the events of the last few panels. Anna Rule estimates that the trial by forfeiture will basically just straight up destroy Leto. Margot, clearly ignorant of the 
Benny Gesserit breeding program, <laughs> says, quote, the head of House Atreides? He's not a very significant player in the Lance Rad, end quote. Oh, my God. Which, is that true? Because last I checked, House Atreides is a prominent great house that's been around for, oh, I don't know, 10,000 years. And I get that, like, Leto Atreides made House Atreides much more prominent during his reign. But even by this point, they were gifted Kaladin, like a shining jewel of a planet because of their long service and incredible feats to the Emperor. So I don't really understand that. Also, it's strange that she doesn't know anything about the breeding program, considering Margot canonically is like a breeding sister. But whatever. Very strange assessment. Makes no sense. It's like getting a job at Apple and being like, we make phones? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. Yeah, bro. You're right. Weirdly unprepared for her job as literally her job. <laughs> now, nevertheless, Anna Rule brings up Moheim's daughter and informs Margot that they've basically got to breed her with Leto Atreides. They're like, Moheim's daughter, who is alive and well, we got to breed her with Leto Atreides. And although Hazimir is kind of, has this kind of bloodlust and wants to destroy Leto and strip him of all, all of his holdings, Anirul basically says, listen, the Bene Gesserit can't let that happen. We need House Atreides to still be a thing in like 15 years. We need them to still be around. So for that, we need to protect them. And thus, maybe a glimmer of hope for an otherwise very rough place for House Atreides you now have one of the most powerful organizations saying, basically, we're on Team Atreides right now for this reason. And thus, the uh, issue ends. <laughs> Oof. There it is. Issues 9 and 10, folks. Yeah. A wild ride. We did it. <laughs> we did it. Abu. <laughs> yes. As we wrap up this episode, uh-huh. let's talk big picture. Let's talk about the whole experience. Walk me through it. I know I make this joke every time, but you love this. This is your favorite. <laughs> I know. I have to stop you texting me sometimes because you're just like, oh, I love this comic series so much. I love it so much. Yeah. Uh, overall impressions, nine and 10. How are you feeling? <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy, Leo. Uh-huh. I, I have done my darndest. Sure throughout this entire conversation to not be so overly critical to try and find the things I enjoy in these panels and pages. It has been tough. Yeah. It has been tough. And at this point, uh-huh. 10 issues into this thing, just two more issues away from the finale. I am simply at a loss for words mm. at how utterly awful this comic is. <laughs> uh-huh. Shocking lore inconsistencies and plot contrivances aside, I think what irks me the most is the literal fifth grade level writing all throughout this story. Yeah. I could not point to a single page of today's reading in all of nine and 10 that had any bit of nuance. Right. It is all just heavy handed exposition or awkward character dialogue. Right. The writing just pendulums between those two things all throughout this comic. And comparing it to something masterful like the Vision comic by Tom King, which is one of my favorite comics of all time, mm-hmm. this series looks like a fucking joke, honestly. Right. And to really like unshackle myself and give my honest thoughts, I'd go so far as to say that this series is not only a disgrace to the Dune universe, which it objectively is, 
but literally is an insult to the entire comics medium, which <laughs> has proven itself to be the source of some of the most creative storytelling in all of pop culture. Yeah. Like, at this point, the Dune property needs to be taken away from these people and given to someone who will actually give a shit and not just go in for these easy, cheap cash grabs. Right. So before I go off and say things I'll regret later, what I will say on the record is that Dune House Atreides, this comic series, does not deserve your time, and it most certainly does not deserve your money. Just pirate this shit if you're <laughs> even at all interested in reading it. Those are my thoughts. Uh, That's kind of where I'm at at this point. <laughs> uh, for legal purposes, we do not endorse piracy, and uh, we suggest you... Borrow a friend's copy? I don't know. Put it on your friend. Get a, get a free copy from your friend. <laughs> your friend's friend can break the rules. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for being the grown-up in the room, Leo. Before I say anything I'll regret, break the fucking law! Do it! <laughs> Murder a man with your bare hands and watch the life drain out of his eyes. <laughs> Leo, I'm curious to hear your thoughts after my sort of very angry opinion here. Sure. Did you feel the same or... Did you come at it from a different perspective? Oh, no, I loved it. I mean, I think this is great. Probably one of the best. Com- no. Okay. We have been this whole time, right? We got like three issues in and we were like, this is not great. This is not even good <laughs> most of the time. Sure hope it turns around and turns around it hasn't. Uh, kind of as we anticipated, this is coming to a frustrating end, which is fine. I mean, more details have been added to the list of things that will need to be reconciled in the next two issues, like more changes that need to be fixed. And uh, I have a couple of standout thoughts and observations. Hit me. One of which is somewhat sympathetic to Brian. Like, we give Brian Herbert a lot of shit. And part of this is, like, we chose very early on as a podcast to stick by the Dune Encyclopedia because it's so much more consistent with Frank's writings. But in Brian's defense... In this situation, I read parts of this issue in his actual book, and it was better, less clunky. It wasn't as just frustrating, and it didn't feel as disrespectful to the source material. So there's definitely something being lost in translation to this medium. And there were definitely times when my problem, my big objection, was only in the comic and wasn't even in the uh, the original text. The uh, art also continues to be a highlight, in particular, like the navigators, although it doesn't really make sense, (laughs) the form they take. They look great. They look so good. And there was this good moment where Leto, as he's deciding whether or not to turn on his shields, while on the Highliner, is kind of framed by these geometric details in the ship that look very much like hawk wings. And I just had to take a step back and appreciate that sort of like visual nod, visual detail nod to the House Atreides emblem, you know? And again, the covers are breathtaking. It's it's great. That being said, kind words aside, Hazimir Fenring, one of my favorite characters of all time, fucking done dirty by this book. Like, just the voice he's written in is like, a, he's a bully, he's like brash, he's angry and temperamental. Maybe we're seeing young Fenring, But I refuse to admit, considering the Bene Gesserit are like, he's a Kwisatz Haderach potential candidate, very powerful, very capable, but his problem was he was too introverted or too inwardly focused. That is not this character that we're being shown every scene. And 
that's frustrating. He's kind of just a generic henchman in these panels. Yeah. Also, he's a failed Kwisatz Haderach, which, I mean, I think it literally means he's part of the Bene Gesserit plan that ended up failing, sure. But the idea that Shaddam's whim, as Shaddam's like, hey, why don't you get a wife too? And he's like, oh, sure, I guess I will. Do you have anybody? And they're like, Margot's free. All of that seems so in the moment and on a whim and on the whim of Shaddam the fourth. It just doesn't make sense. Like, clearly, Fenring had to be on their radar already. There's no way he wasn't. So, you know, I'll, I'll say I've decided that I will 100% read the original book. I <laughs> will probably borrow it from a friend or get it from the library. <laughs> I'm not going to fucking pay money for it. That would be absurd. <laughs> yeah. If nothing else, I feel like the book may be less frustrating and maybe we'll uh maybe we can talk about the actual book itself and reflect on these episodes and our takeaways from the comics and maybe talk about some of the big changes. I don't know. That's that's basically it. It's fine. It's not good. It's frustrating. I agree. Don't spend money on it. Check it out from the library if you can, or you know, borrow it from a friend. Yeah. And whatever you do. If you're going to take a horse to Arrakis, protect him. What are you doing? <laughs> Don't let him get shot by Harkonnens. It's terrible. Bad right. horse ownership. Why did you leave it out in the open? Equestrian 101. Don't let them get shot by lasers. That's the rule. <laughs> Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. An invisible ship? Oh! A ghost ship? <laughs> ghost ship. It was alive and is now dead. <laughs> I think that's literally, doesn't he say ghost ship in like bold italics? Bold italics, like, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, dude. What nuanced, subtle writing. Okay. Yeah. All right.